You are listening to a message from Foothills Church in Miraville, Tennessee. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com. Well, good morning. It's good to see you guys here today. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, let's go to Acts chapter 17. We are in a series working our way through the book of Acts, and we are in chapter 17 uh, today. You know, uh, golf is probably the most difficult sport uh, in the world. And uh, how many of you guys are golfers and maybe agree with that? Yeah, golf is pretty tough. And, um, you know, one of the things that I love about golf is like the, the, the tee shot, your first shot, is, is really the, the, the greatest part about golf. You know, and everybody loves the tee shot. I love to get, you know, the, the driver out, love to hit the ball as hard as we can and see how far we can hit it. As men, we kind of feel manly when we see that. And uh, we, everybody loves to see how far we can drive the ball. But experts say that the, the drive is, is not really the most important shot. Uh, experts say that the most important shot is your approach shot. So that'd be your second shot, uh, the shot where you're trying to land the, uh, the, the ball on the green. And, and the point is you want to get it really close to uh, the, the pin, the cup, so that you can put it in and, you know, get a birdie or uh, at least get par. And, and so, you know, for me, when, when I hit my approach shot, it usually ends up in the sand trap or in the rough. But uh, the point is to, you know, land it close to the cup. And so uh, it's all about your approach. Now in life, uh, that is really a reality for us as well. It's, it's all about our approach. And what I mean by that is for, for some of you, like you may say the right thing, but it's all in the approach. If you say the right thing, but you say it in the wrong way, what happens in the relationship? Well, the relationship continues to, to suffer. You might have the right information, you may be right in your argument, but if you say it at the wrong time, then the relationship is going to continue to suffer. Think about it. Uh, guys, if you're married and uh, your wife offends you or she does something that you know, hurts you and, and your response or your approach is to yell at her or to you know, uh, intimidate her, she's not gonna hear a word you say, right? You're not gonna communicate effectively what's going on in your heart. It's all about your approach. Now, when it comes to how we share the gospel, with our community, it's all about our approach. It's all about how we share that message. Now, listen, we never change the message of the gospel, but our approach does change depending upon the people that we are communicating to. Think about it like this. If you're sharing the gospel with the four-year-old, you know, the best approach isn't to sit him or her down and say, hey, honey, have you heard about the lake of fire yet? A lot of fire and flames and gnashing of teeth. No, that's the wrong approach for a little kid, right? And so it's all about our approach. What we're going to see in the scripture today is Paul's approach to a very intellectual high-end crowd. And so how does he share the gospel with them? And, and his approach is going to teach us a lot and uh, how we should apply that to our community. And what's great about it is really this idea and mentality, and he kind of ties it all in that we're going to see, but our approach to worship is going to determine our approach to sharing the gospel. And so it's equally as important that we see uh, this in the context today. That's why today at 115, right after this service, we're gonna gather here and talk about how we can approach our community with the gospel. Our No Place Left training is today. I would love for you guys to stick around. It's only gonna be about an hour, uh, but we're gonna begin to unveil some of the framework and some of the pieces of what this looks like for our church to really engage our community with the gospel and really be able to say there's no place left uh, one day uh, as 
as we seek to share the gospel. It's all about our approach. And so that's today at 115. But uh, let's look at chapter 17, and uh, we'll start in verse 16. Here's what Luke tells us. He says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked. His spirit was stirred. He had a burden within his heart. <clears throat> and it says his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and in the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the Aragopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Leave your Bibles open. We'll go to the next passage in just a second. But I want to kind of recap what we're learning here. In verse 16, we're seeing that Paul's spirit is provoked because what he notices and what he sees in this city is thousands upon thousands of idols that have been created for the purpose of worship. And so he sees this endless, mindless worship happening to these, you know, nothing idols. And his heart is broken for them. And so his spirit is provoked. He's concerned. The way that I word it today that, that you and I have to experience as well is that he was disturbed by idolatry. He was disturbed by it. His spirit was disturbed. He, he, he couldn't stand to see this empty, meaningless worship around him. He saw people running after false idols and giving their life to things that didn't matter and that would never bring any hope, that would never accomplish salvation, that would never bring true joy. And his spirit was disturbed. And I wonder, are you broken? Is your spirit disturbed by the lostness that's in our community? The people that you work with who don't know Christ, the people in your family, the neighbors that you live next to, is your spirit disturbed by that? Do you want to see them know Jesus? I think that's the first point we want to wrestle with today is, do we care? Does our spirit wrestle with that? And, and are we burdened by that? That's step one. You see, he's in a city known as the intellectual center of the world at this time. In Athens, there were uh, philosophers such as Socrates and, and Aristotle and Plato. And this is where uh, all of this center of intellectual thought uh, was actually birthed. It had the uh, largest university. It was known as a university uh, city. And so uh, the smartest, the intellectuals are, are living here. And, and uh, Paul is standing up in what's called the Aragopagus. And that's basically a huge stadium. It's called Mars Hill one of the largest stadiums in the world at this time. And, and he is standing up and he's speaking in the place where other uh, great philosophers have spoke throughout history. And, and as he speaks to them, there are uh, all kinds of people there. I mean, there were Jews there, people who believed in God, wanted to please God. They were there. 
I'm sure the average person was there too, not really sure what to expect or not really sure what he was talking about. And, and so those, those guys are in the crowd as well. And, and then there were two groups of people that he specifically says are in the crowd. And he calls them the Epicureans and the Stoics. And we know from other writings, uh, the philosophies that both of these groups of people really held to. And the first group, the Epicurean, uh, their philosophy was a hedonistic uh, philosophy. In other words, their total goal in life was to live for pleasure. Their mentality and their philosophy to life was do anything and everything that brought you pleasure. They didn't really believe in a God, but if there was a God, they would say that he's not really interested in the world that we live in. And so, hey, live it up today because there's nothing after this life. It was hedonism. The Epicureans were, or, or sorry, the Stoics were completely different. They were on the opposite side of things. They were pantheists, which means that they believed uh, that, that, that God was in everything and everywhere. And, and their mentality was that uh, our ability to reason and to think allowed us to discover our own truth. And so reason, logic was, was really what they used to experience joy and fulfillment in life. They, they sought to live a moral life, but because reason and logic was, was really their focus, they believed that through your reason and through your own logic, you would discover what morality is. And you got to determine what your morality is. And, and this guy over here, through his reason and through his logic, he would determine what is moral in his own way. And so you can see that the Athenian culture was much like our own culture today. We live in a world where people live for nothing but pleasure, and they give their time and energy and their money to seek the next thing that's going to bring them pleasure. And, and then there's also another group who live by reason and logic and, and believe and, and think that, hey, you come up with your own logic and your own reason, and I'll come up with mine, and, and we can all kind of figure this out on our own and, and, and pay no respect to the Word of God and His structure and guidance for our life. In verse 21, it says that the Athenians spent all of their time, they didn't do anything but learning and, and hearing and talking about what was new. You know, what, what's the latest news? Talk, talk to me about the latest theology or the latest philosophy and tell me what's going on. And again, isn't this a picture of our culture today? We are a culture that wants the latest news. Every single one of you ha have a friend. I call him the, the did you hear friend. Hey, did you hear? Did you hear about what happened? You know, did you hear about what Trump said? Hey, did, did you hear about what the coach did? Did you hear about the team? Did you hear about what happened, you know, in the city last night? Hey, did you hear? Did you hear? Did you hear? Why? Because this person thrives on sharing the latest news, that they thrive on sharing something with us that you don't know. We live in that kind of culture. We want to talk about the latest news. And so we, we have dedicated, you know, TV channels that are dedicated 24 hours a day, seven days a week to the latest news. And not only the latest news, but specific news like sports news and specific news like the latest gossip in Hollywood and, and even more specific news on the economy. And we can't get enough of the latest news. What's new? What's new? We can watch a live broadcast of the news. And, and what do we do? We don't just listen to what he or she is saying. We want to read the bottom red ticker. Why? Because we don't just want live news. We want breaking news. What's, the, what's, the, what's breaking right now? What's trending on Twitter right now? Why? Because we thrive to know what's going on. What's the latest news? This is the culture that Paul is speaking to uh, here in Athens. And 
In verse 22, he begins to speak directly to them. And here's what he says. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Aragopagus, he said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. You're very religious. Verse 23, for as I passed along and I observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, you worship as unknown. This I proclaim to you. See, they were worried that they had left a God out of the equation. And just in case we left somebody out of the equation, let's go ahead and create one more idol. Let's put him on the shelf just in case if he ever shows up and says, hey, you guys aren't worshiping me. You can say, oh, no, 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 we were. He's right here. We just didn't know what your name is. And Paul says, what you worship as unknown, I know him personally. Let me tell you about my God. Verse 24, the the God who made the world, he is the God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in temples made by man. He's not confined to an idol that we create. He's not confined to a building that we would build. He is not uh, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything in it. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. He determined where you would live. He determined what year you would be born. Verse 27, and that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way around uh, toward him and find him. So he's saying we, we are on a search for God. We are feeling our way around trying to find him. And he says, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. It'd be, a, it'd be a shame if God was far from us, but he is not. He says, for in him we live and move and we have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, he created us. We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art an imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. What we see here Paul doing now is his heart is broken He's disturbed by the idolatry, but then he finds common ground with this group of people. He finds a common ground. He doesn't start with the Bible verse. He doesn't start with a chapter and a verse. Why? Because they don't really care. There's, there's no authority uh, in the word of God to these people. So he doesn't start there. He, he starts with their own questions and he finds common ground. And he says, I can tell that you guys are really, really religious. Now that word religious could be translated as superstitious. So it's either a spiritual, religious, I see you guys are really spiritual. Or he could be saying, I see that you guys are really superstitious. And in either way, it proves that we are on a search for God. The human heart is on a search for idols. We're on a search for God. And as we search for God, something that that is valuable to us, something that we want to give our life to, something that we will find meaning in, as we search for this God, we settle for idols. And as a result here, Paul confronts them, but he, he says, I, I want to find common ground here with you guys. And so I see that you're 
religious. I see that you're superstitious. Now, have you ever said or heard somebody say when something bad happens or, or you know, in a situation and somebody says, well, that's karma for you, you know? That's a pagan philosophy that because we're superstitious, because we're seekers of God, we, we just kind of adapt that into our own language. Uh, if you're an athlete or no athletes, you know they are some of the most superstitious people the world has ever seen. I read that Michael Jordan used to wear his North Carolina basketball shorts underneath his Bulls uniform because he was superstitious. <laughs> I, I read that Serena Williams, the tennis player, before she serves, she has to bounce the ball five times, not four, not six, five times uh, every time before she actually serves. Wade Boggs, the baseball player, he said that he had to eat chicken before every single game. <laughs> like we're superstitious. When I was in high school, when I was a senior in high school, I wore the same pair of socks in every big game. Like I had these socks that my grandmother bought me. They were, they were so ugly. They had this picture of this huge trout fish on it. You know? And I wore them every, every game. By the end of the year, they were disgusting. But I had to wear them because I played good at them the first time. And superstition, right? Because I see that you're religious. I see that you're spiritual. But you are worshiping idols. And even the God of the universe that you don't know, you're, you, you don't know him, but, but you're claiming to worship him. John Calvin said that the human heart is an idle factory. What he meant by that is we are constantly creating things that we feel are valuable, that we think we're gonna get something from, that we think that we are gonna get enjoyment from, and we're gonna get satisfaction from, and so we create that idol and we go after it, and we give our time, our energy, we give our resources, our talent towards it, and we run after it whether it's a relationship or whether it's sensual pleasure, whether it's money, we run and run and run. And then at some point we realize that whatever that thing is, isn't really giving us contentment or joy or happiness. And so what do we do? Our heart creates another idol and we try it out and we run after it. And so that relationship didn't bring me joy. That sexual encounter didn't bring me the happiness that I thought my heart needed. So let me go to this one. Let me go to that one. And this drug didn't quite do it. It worked for a while, but now it's not working anymore. And, and this and that and going from place to place, our heart is an idol factory. The Greeks worshiped thousands of gods and they built temples for these gods. And, and their mentality was, and this is interesting, that Whatever it is that you needed or you thought you needed, then whatever that God provided in, in what you needed, you would go to that temple and you would offer sacrifices and worship that God. So for instance, the God Plutus was the, the Greek God of prosperity and wealth. And so if you wanted prosperity, if you wanted wealth, then you would go to the temple dedicated to the Greek God Plutus and you would offer sacrifices and you would worship him in hopes that he would give you what it is you desire. The Greek goddess Aphrodite, where we get our word aphrodisiac. She was the goddess of sensual pleasure, of love. And, and so if you wanted to find love, if you wanted to experience sensual pleasure, then you would go to the, the, the temple dedicated to Aphrodite and you would worship her in hopes that she would give you what she could provide. And, and so on and on and on you go. The Greek goddess Nike was the god of victory. And so if you wanted victory, you would go and worship Nike and you would wear shoes with a big swoosh on it. It would make you run faster and jump higher. And there was actually a Greek goddess named Cloacina. And Cloacina was the goddess of the sewer system, <laughs> believe it or not. And so if you wanted a regular bowel movement, you would go to her and you would worship her, right? I guess that would, some of you would be like, man, I need to go see her. But anyway, so we tend to worship things 
that we think we're going to get something from. And some of us come even to the Lord Jesus with that mentality. What can you and will you give to me? And in our greatest times of need, we beg and plead with him to give us what we want in a desire for him to please us instead of our heart affection to please and honor him. The two biggest gods I think that we serve today, the two biggest idols in our world are the God of comfort and the God of status. And when you think about it, our culture is infatuated with comfort and status. We run after the idol of comfort and we will do anything and we want to get more money so that we can experience more comfort. In any situation that causes us to, to feel uncomfortable, we want to run from. Even if God is calling us to address it or to deal with it, it's uncomfortable to me, so I'm going to leave the relationship. I'm going to leave the church. I'm going to run away from this environment at work. Why? Because I am uncomfortable and my idol and my God is comfort. Some of us, our God is status. And we've got we've, we've to make the money and get the the home and we've got to wear the clothes and we've got to have the family so that everybody looks at us and realizes that we got it together. We're legit, right? Right, look at us. And we have to take the pictures of the kids and we do everything we can for our kids to make them look better and, and look great. And then we throw it all over social media so that everybody knows that, hey, we got it going on. Just know that, right? But you've discovered that more and more money doesn't really give you the ultimate status that you thought it was gonna give you. It hasn't given you enough comfort because your desire is always for more. How much money do you need? A little bit more so that I can get a little bit more comfort so that my status could grow a little bit further. Paul finds common ground with this group of people. He says, I, he says, I see that you are very religious. And how does he approach him? I see that you go to God to see what you can get from him instead of going to him because of who he is, what he's done. The Athenians are a picture of our culture today, even in church culture. I know that there is something else out there. I know that there is more to life and I'm searching for it and I'm longing for it. And that longing is to find God, to embrace God, to worship God. But along that process to find and seek God, we settle for idols. And you might be here today attempting to come to a worship experience, but you have only continued to worship the God of comfort or the God of status. Some of you here today haven't even experienced an ounce of what it looks like to worship Jesus for who he is. I see that you are very religious. I see that you wore the right clothes, and you've said the right things. I see that you served in the right areas, but your heart is far from him. I think some of us come often for the wrong reasons. We come for status because that is our God. We come to the worship experience because we want our friends to see that we are here. Hey, we're here. We've got it together. We're a good family, and I'm here. And uh, we want to keep up that appearance, even if our marriage is falling apart, even if our kids are rebellious. Hey, we're here. We got it all together. Everybody make sure we're good. Some of the men in the room came because you wanted to keep up the right relationship and status with your wife. 
because you knew you'd be in the doghouse if you didn't come today. And so we don't come for the right reasons. Hey, I want to come to church. Yeah, to, I don't really need it that much. I come for my kids. I know they really need it. I hear that all the time. My kids really need this. And, and the reality is you don't really want your, you don't really feel like your kids need more of Jesus. You're not really concerned if they are worshiping Jesus. You're, you just don't want them to have sex and you don't want them to do drugs. And so let's bring them to church so that we can maintain our status because I want everybody to know that my kids have it together, which reflects upon me, and they will think that I have it together because I serve the God of status, and that's where my heart is today. And for me and for you, we've got to constantly understand where our heart's affection is at today because when we come to Jesus and we worship him, my fear is that our worship is empty. And when I look at the Bible, I see worship all over the place. And and worship is our response. It's our response to who God is and what he has done. And so as I worship him, that means that there is activity towards him. There is love and affection that go in his direction. And so there is time and talent and energy towards this God. We read the scriptures and we see, yes, they sang. They sang out to God. And, and we come into the worship experience on Sunday and many don't even sing. We see that, yes, they sing, but they also fall to their knees in prayer. And how often do we come to church and we don't even pray personally? Yeah, we pray from the stage, but what about your heart? We see that they lift up their hands You know, for us, it's like, I'm a little worried to lift up my hands. Why? Because so-and-so may see me lift up my hands. And because I serve the God of status, I care more about what he thinks than what God thinks right now, what the longing of my heart really wants me to experience right now. So instead of freely worshiping Jesus, my God of status has got to keep it real, got to keep it together. Even listening to the preaching of the word of God is worship. You can respond to God as as the sermon is preached and engage him. Are you thinking deeply about him today and and how you listen to his voice? And are you even expecting him to speak today? And, And our attitude has to reflect that. I expect God to speak to me today, no matter who's speaking, no matter what music we sing. I am running after my God today. That's why I always have my Bible when someone's preaching or have your app that has the word of God, I always have a notebook or some, some mechanism to take notes because if the, if the God of the universe speaks something to my heart, I, I better write it down because by the time I hit the back doors after this hour is up, I will have forgotten it. How do you engage the sermon? Sometimes when I preach, I wonder if some of you are alive. <laughs> it's like, you know, you haven't smiled yet. You know, I haven't seen your head move, you know. I haven't seen you blink. (laughs) Touch your neighbor right now and say, are you alive today? You want to wake up a little bit? You see, it's okay, you know, when we sing worship to God, to raise our hands, to to bow in prayer. It's okay to sing out loud, even if you have a bad voice. And it's it's an appropriate response. It's an appropriate response when when something is preached that, that you are connecting with to nod your head and, and smile and, 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 and maybe even get super spiritually uh, spiritual and go, mm-hmm, yep, mm-hmm, that's right, you know. It's all right to respond and it's okay to shake your head, right? This, we need to feel alive today and, and the Holy Spirit of God is speaking to your heart. And one of the benefits of, of preaching is that 
I, I preach or I write the sermon about two weeks in advance, and so I get about two weeks just to kind of marinate on this stuff. And so it just, it just floods, you know, my heart, and I, and I get to kind of just well up. And, 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 and then out of the overflow of what God's done in my heart, I get to share, you know, with you. And God speaks through his word, and we want to respond to him appropriately. We want to engage our hearts, bring your Bible, sing, take notes, and, and expect God to do something in your heart today. You see, your approach to worship will greatly impact. It will determine your approach to sharing the gospel with others. Thirdly, Paul proclaims Jesus here. He goes right into a, an exhaustive list of who this God is. And he says that this God is, 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 first of all, the God, singular, to a culture that worshiped thousands of gods. This would have been mind-blowing and challenging. There's only one God. He says, yeah, there's one God, and he created the universe, and he created everything in it, the heavens and the earth, and everything he created owes allegiance to him. This God doesn't live in temples, and this God is not served by human hands as if he needed anything from us today. God is not in heaven begging you to serve him today. God is not up in heaven begging you to wake up on this rainy day to come and to be in this place. He's not begging you to give any money today. Why? Because he doesn't need that to be a better God. God is not hanging a sign on the church that says help wanted. God hangs a sign on the church that says help available. And so all of us as created beings of this holy God, we have the experience to gather together and to connect our heart and our attention and our affection to this holy God for who he is, not simply what he can give to us or what we think he should be giving to us today. He's not served by me. He's not served by you as if he needs anything from us. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need anything from us today. He is completely self-sufficient. And nothing you or I can do can make him a better God. Praise God for that. He doesn't need me today, but it is my opportunity to praise him and to worship him. Verses 27 and 28 tell us that we are on this search. And again, he finds common ground because he quotes popular poets of the day. These are Greek poems that he's quoting from. In him, in God, we live and we move and we have our being. In him, we are indeed his offspring and we, we are created by him. And so we live and we move and we have our being. See, this is the philosophical statement of the, of the truth of God's word. Nothing we do will bring us purpose or meaning. We will never enjoy this life until we live and breathe and experience the grace and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, I think we come to this worship experience and we put ourselves in the place of honor. And so we come before a holy God and instead of the appropriate response, what we give to him is this idea that he should be focused on us, right? So, so in this place, God, here I am, like, hey, okay, there we are. Hey, I'm here today, God. Congratulations. I even served. I, I handed out some stuff, and I shook some hands, so you're welcome, and I'm awesome. And Hey, they better sing those songs that I like, you know, if they don't. Man, I'm probably going to have a bad attitude. And 
They better do that sermon series that, that really gets me going. And if they do another sermon series that does other stuff, then I'm probably gonna leave. And you know what I like, God, so make it, make it happen, you know? God, make, make sure all the environment kind of wraps around what I enjoy and what I like. And so I'm just gonna come here and kind of take the place uh, in, in the seat of honor today. Why? Because the worship gathering is about me. Isn't that a picture of church culture today? It's about me. Made me laugh, pastor. Inspire me today. If you don't, you missed it. Every week, I need you to do that, by the way. <laughs> Every week. Sing the right songs, do the right dance. If not, we're probably gonna leave and you know we're gonna take our money with us and God, you understand all that, right? And it's not until we get in the proper posture before a holy and living God that he begins to bless us and we begin to connect with him on a deeper level. And really and truly what we must do is we need to turn our attention and our focus on the real God, not an idol, on the real God that offers us life and breath, purpose and meaning. And it's when we see him for who he is and we put our body and our spirit and our heart in the proper posture that we can finally begin to see him for who he is. Not simply what he's going to do for us or how we're gonna manipulate him to get our way, but that we look to him for who he is, his grace and his love and his mercy. And it's at that that we fall on our knees and we praise this God for who he is. And when we change our perspective and we, we get the lens pointed in the right direction, then every decision and everything in our life begins to make more sense and we begin to identify areas of sin in our life and we begin to identify even deeper who this God is and how much he loves us and how enjoyable it is to discover him. You see, I think we just have a church culture today that doesn't view church and worship in this experience, in this light. And we've made it all about us. We've made it about preference. If we've made it about what we get out of the experience instead of what we give to this God. Paul preaches to the folks and he says, look, the the, the times of ignorance are over. In other words, God overlooked sin. He didn't allow it. He, he didn't, it's not like he agreed with it, but look, he just, he just let it happen. But he says those days are over. He sent a messenger. He sent the Messiah. He sent Jesus. And he died on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. And he rose from the grave, defeating Satan, defeating death, defeating sin. And he says it's a requirement now that all mankind repent. And that means that we, we turn away from our life of sin. We, we change our minds, we change our hearts, we change our attitudes by the grace of God. We turn from our way and we turn to the way of the Lord. That's what repentance is. If you've never done that today, I encourage you to take that step of obedience and make Jesus Christ the Lord of your life. Stop worshiping idols and worship the one true living God. If you're here today and you would say, you know what, my heart is uh, connected to the Lord like I've given my life to Christ, then for you, it's recognizing that idol factory in your heart 
What idols have you created recently? And what have you begun to serve? And, and is God calling you back to a place of repentance to turn from idols, to turn from things that you are leaning into and pressing into that are bringing nothing but false hope? And God is calling you to think deeply upon the truth of his word and grow closer to him in worship today and turn from sin in your life. There's a church in England back in the 90s and the pastor of this church was feeling that the worship gatherings were pretty flat and they were just kind of going through the motions. And they had this rising star leading worship and, and uh, a lot of people were coming to hear him and the band was great, the music was great, the lights were great, but the pastor just felt like the, the church at large, they were just kind of going through the motions and then there was no real heart connection with the Lord. And so what he decided to do was unplug the sound system, no instruments. We're just gonna read the word of God. We're gonna preach the word of God and we're gonna sing a cappella. And so that's what he did. And it was through that season in the life of that church that very popular worship leader, Matt Redman, wrote the lyrics to a song that would become one of the most popular worship songs of the 90s in churches all over the world called The Heart of Worship. And the lyrics of that song start with this. When the music fades and all is stripped away and I simply come. The reality is when, when you take away the lights, when you take away the band, when you, when you take away the great you know, musicians and you take away the, the, the good speakers, do we really just strip it all down and can we really just focus on Jesus? Or would that cause us to say, you know what, this place is just not legit. Like this isn't like the place for us anymore. Like we need all that stuff, bells and whistles. We're here for the show, man. We're not here to really connect with Jesus. We need a little bit of emotion and we need inspiration. We need all this. It was during that time that he wrote this song and he goes on to say that, God, you search much deeper within. You're looking into my heart, right? And that's the truth of worship. God knows your heart today. He's not just looking for an outward status that, we're trying to reach, he wants to connect with your heart. And it's your opportunity to connect with him. And, and so, yeah, great music, catchy beats, talented musicians, being here with friends and loved ones, all of this is great, but these are good things and wonderful in the context of corporate worship. And yet when we focus on them rather than Jesus, we lose the heart of true biblical, authentic worship. And my encouragement and challenge for you today is that you will re return and maybe for the first time experience the true heart of worship. Let me ask you to bow your heads. For some of you, you've not experienced true worship. You've never given your life to Christ. You've never made him the Lord of your life. You've never confessed your sin to him. And I wanna give you an opportunity to do that today. It's, it's a simple prayer but we believe God uses this direction and this, this, this kind of commitment to enter you into a brand new creation and connect with God and receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. And it's simple. Just simply say, God, I, I confess that I am a sinner. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And he rose from the grave 
defeating death, defeating sin. And I ask you to forgive me of my sins and come into my life today. I want to experience the heart of worship. I just wonder if there's anyone in the room today that would just lift up their hand and say, Trent, I just prayed that prayer and I truly believe I gave my life to Christ in this moment. I'm not going to ask you to do anything or stand up or go anywhere. I just, just want to see by a show of hands. Anybody at all say, Trent, that was me? Anybody? That was me, Trent. Just prayed, okay, cool. Anybody else? Anybody else? All right, well, that means that as followers of Christ today, the challenge for the majority of us is true repentance in search of authentic worship and returning to the heart of worship and apologizing and confessing what we have made it. And I'm going to ask you, in fact, do that today. Let's pray. Father, forgive us when we make worship about us. Forgive us when we make the church experience about us. There is a lost and dying world at our doorstep. We work with them. We live beside them. And in our attempt to worship idols, we find hopelessness and our impact in the community with the gospel is minimal or non-existent. And we want to return you to your rightful place today. Lord, when it's all stripped away and it's just you and me, I want to be found faithful. I want to worship you for who you are. You deserve every ounce of worship today. No matter what I am going through, you are God. And when it's with my heart that I sing, it's with my heart that I lift my hands, it's with my, my heart today and my head that I connect to you over the deep truths of your grace and your love. And to that end, Lord, we stand to our feet and we sing to you in Jesus' name, amen. Would you please stand as we worship? Thank you for listening. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com.